0: So, uh, Welcome back to our podcast, uh, episode two of Just Psych, uh, Justice Meets Psychology. Uh, that, that, that took us a lot longer than we thought to make up that name. <laughs> uh, my, my reluctance to uh, pick one thing and just keep coming up with new things and Marissa just trying to Occam's razor the entire situation. And it was just like, well, this part sounds good here. And I like this. So why don't we just take those two things instead of trying to make, constantly make new things. So, yeah. Uh, So today's episode uh, is about allyship. Uh, uh, Like we talked about kind of the first primary reason why we want to do this uh, podcast was uh, about how to uh, use our, uh, you know, power and privilege uh, as psychologists in training uh, to uh, do more good. Um, so we're going to kind of, I don't know, maybe learn a little bit about what it means to be an ally and uh, how to, uh, and how that will maybe look like what it will look like for our podcast, and what it will look like going forward, and uh, hopefully maybe provide people with some resources for themselves to, you know, learn how to be a better ally.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I do think that this is a good episode to start off talking about why we're doing this podcast in the first place, um, and showing how a lot of the different issues that we'll be talking about are our way of being an ally for all the different things that we're going to be talking about throughout the podcast. So the first thing we'll talk about here is a case and Related to this case, if you've ever heard the phrase that if you're not a part of the solution, you're a part of the problem. So, we'll go back to this case of Kitty Genovese. And some of you may have heard of this case before. But Kitty Genovese was a woman in New York. And she was returning back to her apartment after work. And... A man started to chase her and was aiming to murder her. And she yelled for help. And she was in front of a large apartment building. And when she was in front of this apartment building, a lot of people obviously saw what was happening, looked out their windows. Some people came out and yelled for the man to stop. Um, But nobody actually really did anything. Um, No one called the police. And so Katie Genovese, she did actually escape once from the man. But then he followed her around the corner back to her apartment. And she ended up passing away in the doorway of her apartment. She made it inside, but the man caught up with her. Um, Before she was able to close the door and be safe. And so in that situation, a lot of psychologists were obviously interested, like, what happened? Why didn't anybody actually help her besides just yelling at the man and not actually doing anything to prevent Kitty Genovese's death? And so... From that situation, you can certainly see that, you know, the people in the apartment, they weren't actually actively harming Kitty Genevieve's, but by not doing anything, she died. So we can think about that case and use it to think about how when we don't say anything to prevent injustices from happening, that we're allowing the situation to continue. And that can sometimes be hard to wrap your head around because you're not actively trying to harm any group of people. But if you don't do anything and you're allowing the situation to continue, then Mm -hmm. you're kind of just being complacent and letting the injustices that are happening to people continue. (laughs) So um, in the late 1960s, Researchers in psychology, um, Darley and Latane, they um, created a simulation where a person was led to believe that either they were alone or there were a few other people around, and then at some point they hear somebody yelling for help that they're having an epileptic seizure. And so you're led to believe it's an emergency situation where this person really needs help. And if they believed that they were the only person around, they were significantly more likely to help. And as they thought more and more people were around, they Mm -hmm. were less and less likely to help. So that's showing that if there are other people around you're less likely to take responsibility for something that's happening. And so, especially when we're in the situation of fighting for um, justice, fighting for people to have um, the rights that are owed to them as a human being, uh, you don't necessarily see how you can have an impact by, speaking out and doing something because you think, you know, there's a whole world out there. Um, So there's a lot of people that can do something. Mm -hmm. But if we take that position, then it's likely that almost everyone will not do anything as was found in the study from Darley and Latine. So In relation to that, we'll move to Brian and he has some more information to share with you, uh, related to this issue of not acting, um, because there are lots of other people around.
0: Yeah. Uh, so like, especially like this, you know, specific case, right? Like, you know, the things that are usually highlighted about it, like... Are the fact that, like, this woman who was attacked, you know... Not everyone saw the attack. Not everyone knew what was going on. But it's, like, it's so easy for us to kind of just, like, ignore snippets of things. Uh, I mean, I lived in Chicago uh, for five years. And, like, there were definitely times where I heard gunshots. I I hear the occasional random scream. uh, And, like...
1: And so, like, I,
0: I would check like police scanner apps, um, you know, to see like, all right, what the hell's going on. Um, but my first instinct was never to like contact the authorities about these types of things. Um, mostly, uh, I'm definitely also really, I'm definitely a jumpy type of person. Like, there are tons of times where uh, I would confuse fireworks and gunshots. Like, so like, there were times where I was like, holy shit, how many? how many guns are going off right now only to then realize like, Oh, the Chicago Cubs just won a game, you know, like, you know, then, like in my first year, like I didn't realize like, you know, they would fire all fireworks every time they want a postseason game. I guess you do that when you haven't won in a hundred years. Uh, but there's something pretty apt about the metaphor, right. Uh, of this situation that basically there are these people, they do know something's happening uh, because like, what eyewitnesses really said was, uh, people would lean out their window and they would yell. They yelled at the man. Like that—that's the reason why uh, the assailant, uh, his name, uh, I think it's William something, uh, uh, Winston Mosley. Uh, like he left because like someone yelled at the window and he ran away. Uh, and that's uh, and that and in the first attack, she was stabbed. Um, She was stabbed in the lungs, uh, and now she most likely could not scream anymore. Uh, And then when she went around, like, for some people, they thought this was a separate incident. Like, they, like, so now you still have, like, this idea of, like, limited information, but still, like, no one like, thinking, like, oh, maybe I should go downstairs, uh, some of the eyewitnesses said, like, I thought it was, like, a drunken brawl, I thought this was two guys, like, I didn't know it was a woman who was in trouble, I didn't know it was an ongoing attack, um, and, uh, one neighbor did go out, uh, I think it was, a uh, an older woman, uh, was there when she died, uh, but, like, no one thought to go there, while she was still alive, while she could still be saved. And I think it's, yeah, I think it is an apt metaphor for what kind of like white privilege looks like. Um, we're willing to maybe stick our heads out the window. Um, we're willing to kind of be like, Hey, stop that. But then, you know, we're going to close our window. And we're going to go back into our comfort. We're going to go back into our place and be like, okay, I did something right. Um, uh, because like, uh, I think it's important uh, for us to definitely highlight the fact that, like, the Kitty Genevieve story is ripe with uh, complications, ripe with uh, criticism, ripe with like these new additional facts. I mean, because there's uh, the facts that are like, uh, well, this is largely an immigrant neighborhood; these uh, these people didn't want to get involved in other people's affairs, and it's like, all right, that's true uh, to an extent. Um, and then there's uh, then there's narrative that Kitty Genevieve's was a lesbian, uh, and it was known. Um, and there's a lot of stigma around that, uh, and people not wanting to be involved, people wanting to be hands off, uh, in that type of way. And that could also possibly be contributing, but it, there's definitely just a larger narrative as we've seen with this new research, which obviously, you know, was sparked by this event, but obviously isn't being informed by it. Obviously this bias isn't occurring within these separate, um, separate elements of research that people do on some level, like think if I contribute a little bit, you know, this diffusion of responsibility occurs. Like if I say that's bad in a group of 10 people, like maybe when one of the other nine people will actually do something about it. I said it's bad. I brought awareness to the issue. And we see that a lot with white privilege. We see that a lot with how people are. Like, um, you know, I mean, at the time that we're talking about this, there's obviously, uh, I think it's 120 people have died uh, since uh, George Floyd. And and, and obviously, it's not just 120, uh, you know, uh, black Americans. It's uh, various people throughout all these protests and things. Um, And it's just this idea of like you know, more and more, like, if you're wanting to be comfortable, you're wanting to be like, all right, well, I don't need to do anything. Like, there's so many other people doing this stuff. Um, and how often do you, yeah, you want to just be able to close your window, literally or metaphorically, uh, to tone out the sounds, um, because you don't want to have to get involved. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's, the, uh, that's the bit of the crux of the issue, especially when it comes to being an ally. Um, it's not enough to uh, just say something, right? Uh, there's something uh, there's something that has to be done um, and done more than just uh, uh, talking. Um, something about an action. Uh, yeah, uh, especially because uh, I know, I know for some of the people I talk to, um, you know, I have some people in my life who are a little left leaning. Um, but like the idea of like silence being complicit, uh, you know, that, that's a big conversation to have. And I think that's a difficult one to have because there are times where, uh, uh, people don't understand why that is the case. They don't understand why that, uh, works the way it does. Uh, so I know like for some of my friends, I, I've had to explain it like as a poker analogy. I've had to explain it as like, uh. So in a poker game uh, when you get to a small enough field, right? let's say like you were playing with nine of your friends, but now there's three of you, uh, and originally you all agreed that only the top two people are going to get money. But maybe it's late, maybe you guys are tired, maybe you want to just chop it between three of you. The normal etiquette of a poker game is that everyone has to agree. Everyone has to agree to whatever new standard or terms are going to make it has to be unanimous. So if One person says, I would like to do a chop for all three of us, you know, to split up the pot. If you don't say anything in that moment, your silence is equivalent to a no, right? Like there's a pressure, there's a societal expectation in that moment that everyone has to say yes. You have to verbally say yes. So if you don't say anything, it's a no. Now, whether or not you heard it, you know, you heard the initial question or not. Like I've had that situation. And then everyone was like, "Well, Brian didn't want to do a chop," and I'm like, "Who asked?" I'm like, "I don't remember anyone even saying they wanted to do a chop." But my silence in that moment became a no. And like that, like everyone can get, like they they can go, like, "Oh, all right, I understand that, but how does it apply here?" And I went, "I went because the societal expectation is that if you're white, you you don't agree with this. If you're white, uh, you're, uh, you know, you're against something like the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know." And especially me, being a white man who comes from a police family. Like, my silence uh, amplified and has a magnitude about, you know, that means clearly I'm not just saying uh, I'm anti this, but I'm also pro that. My silence carries a, is saying a lot, even if I don't intend it to.
1: Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of In psychology, what we call cognitive dissonance, where when you aren't intentionally doing something, but um, you're then told this conflicting information that by not doing anything, you are um, part of the problem, that has a lot of an effect on how your actions are not necessarily lining up with your beliefs. And so there's that is definitely something that can be really difficult. And so when you have this cognitive dissonance, that basically you have those conflicting ideas between your beliefs and your actions, you're going to do something to get rid of that cognitive dissonance. And I am on academic Twitter, which... For those of you who are not aware of that and you're in academia, you should, or just in graduate school, you should definitely join academic Twitter because there's a lot of good conversations that happen in that space. And there's certainly been a lot of good conversations uh, happening about how academics can improve their support of, um, you know, breaking down systems of injustice, especially in the academy. Um, I know there's a hashtag, black in the ivory, which is getting a lot of traction. Um, So definitely take a look at academic Twitter as a side note. Um, But one of the people I follow who is a school psychologist and um, also is in faculty development, so thinks a lot about how to help people develop themselves as teachers, Um, she was talking about how we have these moments of cognitive dissonance and especially now um, there's been a huge increase in support for the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of things have been happening really fast and for teachers especially, um, we all want to believe that we're being inclusive for all of our students. Um, and we're being faced with the reality that we likely are not. Um, and so we're having that cognitive dissonance of we're not being inclusive. And so that can be difficult to face because like, um, uh, Brian was sharing earlier when people were asked about the Kitty Genevieve situation, they came up with a lot of excuses as to why people weren't helping instead of just saying like, they just didn't help. They were, they contributed to her murder by not helping. Um, That's not something that people like to admit. Um, And so if you have to face this conflict that you want to be inclusive, but you're not being inclusive, You may either push aside the belief that you're not being inclusive and say that you're doing the best that you can, and that's it. So you get rid of the cognitive dissonance because you're basically saying, I don't know any better, so I'm just going to continue what I'm doing, and this is too hard, so that's it. Um, But you can also move past cognitive dissonance by actually making changes. And it takes work. You're probably gonna move through even more cognitive dissonance, Um, but it's definitely important to consider um, that in order to make change, you need to be uncomfortable. And so that's definitely an important part of anything. So I am in teaching But for those of you who aren't in teaching, just keeping in mind that we're not perfect people and in order to learn anything, in order to make any changes, you need to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And just knowing that it's not an easy thing to do is important.
0: Yeah, especially like uh, this idea of like discomfort, right? Like uh, as a... You know, uh, part of, uh, part of this podcast is, is, you know, maybe to get people who are interested in psychology, uh, like they're interested in psych stuff, like, you know, we can talk about sex stuff and we're going to do that. Um, you know, part of it is targeted at our peers, people within our field, uh, you know, it's a kind of like call to action to do better, to do more, uh, uh our white peers for the same, for the same matters, Right, uh, But I also think it's uh, also a vehicle for us to be able to kind of uh, be more open about uh, the things that we're struggling with uh, and the things that, like, we're, like, not fully understanding, um, you know, because, you know, to kind of bury the lead a little bit, you know, part of what means to be a good white ally, right, means that, like, we're not always necessarily looking for... Uh, You know marginalized individuals to come in and do the emotional labor for us to come in and you know just like uh hey can you just like teach me why this is racist and can you teach me why like uh, i should like think differently Mm -hmm. uh especially uh especially because like so often in our culture like whitewashing like when we're talking about whitewashing culture like it's just again it's that idea of like let's remove the color let's remove the texture make everything the same, make everything bland. Um, and there's nothing uncomfortable about that. Like, it's pretty comforting. Like when you think about like, uh, like a Pleasantville scenario, right? Like, you know, there's no problems in Pleasantville. Everything's fine. Like everyone's the same and everyone just does what they're supposed to do. And you know, what's expected. Uh, and, uh, so I know, I know Marissa has been, uh, having some issues with, uh, like the protests and the way, uh, the protests have kind of, uh, unfolded in more violence. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people have been injured. A lot of people have been killed. Um, there's been, you know, you know, all this kind of, uh, you know, like almost like unease and kind of rampant destruction. Uh, and, and, but it's interesting because like we can both say like that's happening but obviously um, I'm looking outside my window right now you know on a you a quiet white Long Island town uh, and Marissa is you know more likely than not also in a probably pretty quiet suburb I don't know the uh, cultural makeup of that but yeah. I want to. Yeah, I want to open up this space so that like Marissa can share like what makes her uncomfortable, and then maybe we can talk about it and kind of like you know work through that a bit. Uh, so, and then we'll get back on track with because I because I think this is part of what being an ally is, and then we'll talk more about like what what allyship looks like in action in like a specific institution, um, and then what allyship looks like in. Uh, you know, in practice for ourselves. And then, uh, and then within, I think like in psychology, uh, like some psych course stuff, I think you had Mm -hmm. about like, yeah, some research about what happens when we don't have diversity in psych courses, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, so yeah, to clarify, I am also in a quiet suburb, certainly more diverse than where Brian is, but Mm -hmm quiet suburb <laughs> um, yeah so I don't there were certainly protests in the city that I'm in a suburb of but I didn't see it because I'm in a suburb
0: so. right, and there were protests out here in on Long Island and for the most part like you could you knew where the protests were happening in a predominantly black or predominantly white area so a protest that happened in Merrick. Was met with uh, police force and you know tear gas and increased you know violence, but a protest out in the lily white town that I'm in, nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was a bigger protest too. I think it was at least twice the size, like of the one in Merrick. I and mean, it's just like, not a peep, not a problem, you know. Not not not, not even a skin knee, like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely injustice there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so one of the things that I've been, I guess, struggling with a little bit more is that with the protests, um, you know, 85% of the time, maybe more people are pretty peaceful in the way protesting. they're protesting. Um, but sometimes it becomes more violent, especially in the more recent killing of the uh, man in Atlanta who was apparently um, drunk and then stole one of the police officers' um, tasers. Tasers. They um, ended up setting the Wendy's that he was in front of on fire. Um, And so... For me, it's just uh, been a little bit hard to really wrap my head around like why that would happen because, you know, the Wendy's employees weren't the ones who killed this man. Um, So yeah, that's just something that's been difficult for me to wrap my head around like how is the destruction of property helping the cause. And I tried to talk about it with some people um, in a social media space, tried to learn about it. Um, I watched John Oliver's um, episode on police brutality. Um, And in that, he pretty much says, like, if you've been talking about looting more than you've been talking about um, Black Lives Matter, then go away um so mm-hmm. it's uh definitely been an interesting thing for me to try to work through with so many strong opinions like you're not allowed to talk about that
0: it's so like i think i think like what's kind of an interesting thing about that conversation right is like when you're like when you think about like you know the the property damage or the looting or, uh, you know, or like, like the kind of like the clashing, right? Like the increased violence, you know? Um, I like, I would wonder like, where, like, like, what do you think would be happening if like none of that was there? Like if we somehow could like wave a magic wand, right? And like, proper damage wasn't happening, um, all the protests were 100% peaceful, um, you know, through whatever force, uh, obviously magic here, and, like, uh, you know, and there and there wasn't any looting, right? Like, I wonder, like, do you think we would still be seeing all these different things happening? Like, you know, the ways that, like, LAPD, like, wants to, like, you know, defund police now, Um, I mean, in New York uh, right now, they're getting rid of all plainclothes officers. They're getting rid of all of them. Uh, And yeah, and just like there's, you know, little by little, there's all these different ways in which uh, politicians are either feeling the pressure or whatever to like do some type of systemic change. Like, do you think that those changes would still happen without all that?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's hard to really know that because I can't, yeah, I can't look into somebody's mind and say like the reason that uh, I'm doing this is because of all the violence. Um, Mm -hmm. But it could be. Um, I know I've seen some posts, I guess, about how like hard it is to get like, police officers fired and, like, to do things the right way, um, then that may not really make as much of a change as uh, you want it to. So if you go through all the right steps, um, then there's still ways that cops can get out of um, their situation. I know that John Oliver was talking a lot about that. Um. so that can definitely lead to a lot of frustration if you are doing things the right way and you know cops who are clearly killing people are still getting away with murder
0: I think what you said like the fact like you're not a mind reader right like I think that's really important um, because like I think it means like on some level like it's almost impossible for us to divorce like the protests and like the associated violence. Right. Like, um, mm-hmm. because, cause I'm also like, you know, cause as we're doing this, like, first off, like, I want to make it clear, like, this isn't like, uh, like we're not trying to, uh, like jump on to Marissa. We're not trying to be like, Oh, you're bad. Right like, we are trying to, I'm trying to facilitate a conversation the same way that, like, I've been trained to facilitate conversations, right? I'm using the Socratic method, I'm going to ask questions, I want to learn more about her perspective, like, this is, this is how, I mean, like, especially, like, Marissa, I've known her for years, Marissa has always been very, uh, uh, logic first, emotion second, I think that's fair to say, right? Oh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right? Uh, so, like, like, this is us having, like, this is a conversation we would be having whether we're recording it this way or not. Uh, is, uh, just part of, like, when Marissa posted on social media, uh, like, I was one of the first people to kind of not, like, do, uh, Marissa, you're bad for this. I was there to be like, so, because, like, because my next point is something you also know, like, because I put it on that social media post where I was like, I was like, well, I think we have to take this with a grain of salt. I think we have to be really critical in where is this violence coming from? So, like, it's like now that we know, like, we really can't divorce ourselves from the... Like, the protests and the violence associated, we can't really divorce ourselves from it because, like... Because we know this for a fact, right? If people went out and just started rampaging and looting without a protest, wouldn't probably do anything. But we also know that peaceful protesting you know, uh, you know, fucking, y- y- you, take a knee and we're told that's not okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's something, there's definitely like a combination effect. Right. But we mm-hmm. also know that a lot of the violence that's happening, like there's separate groups, it's being instigated by the police, uh, you know, and that, uh, like even, even then, like, so now we have to, like, think about, like, all right, well, do we say, like, this is equal parts, separate groups, police, and then the actual protesters, right? Like, we'll never know. We're never going to know those percentages. But, like, even if we're just being completely fair and we say, sure, 33% of it is the police, 33% of it is separate groups, and the 33% is, like, protesters uh, uh, engaging in, like, this property destruction and looting. Like, like, I read a great quote where it's, like, the point of smashing that window and taking that TV has nothing to do with the value of the TV. It has to do with the fact that all the times in which these people, these marginalized voices were being silenced, like there was no other way to let you know that I was here than by doing something that now you can see. Because clearly my voice wasn't impactful enough. So you had to... I had to leave a mark. Right? Um, And like... And like we were talking about earlier. uh, You know... Clearly... uh, Being... Like when we're trying to watch Sunday football... And we see a guy knee. It's... It was a snap resolution of cognitive dissonance. Right? Like... Mm -hmm. He hates America. He hates America. He's disrespecting the flag. He shouldn't do this. Um, uh, not so much now, because um, now people are in a uh, they're in a worse double bind, right? Like, yeah, uh, because you know, the because I, I hear more now about people being like, like. Uh, Oh, yeah, like obviously, yeah, this is a problem, but I really wish they would do it the right way, and it's and then, like you and then you can really meet them with a lot of like, but didn't they try to do this the right way, mm-hmm. like you were saying, like you know, there clearly was a right way, and that didn't work because that's really easy to mute, it's really easy to ignore, and clearly doesn't make people in power uncomfortable, mm-hmm. like.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. I guess maybe part of my cognitive dissonance can be like, why aren't the people in power listening to people doing it the right way? So Mm -hmm. it's just like, even going to that higher level, like, you know, in the ideal world, (laughs) this is how it would work. But Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I think it's hard to accept the fact that there is systemic racism. People are actively trying to silence these voices. Um, and mm-hmm. that's hard to accept because we want, I want to believe that we're in this ideal world where people are like me and listen to logic. Um, but the reality is that we're just not, so...
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's a, a really interesting part of what cognitive dissonance doesn't necessarily always cover is that it's still your world. It's still how you're viewing something, right? Um, because we were talking about this a little bit before the podcast about the idea, like, uh, because that tweet, uh, the Twitter thread that uh, Marissa was showing me was like, uh, you know, when you have cognitive dissonance, you either devalue the belief, that's option A, Or you change your behavior to be in line with the belief option B. Um, But I was kind of like, and she was like, and we want option B. We want them to do option B. And I was like, I was like, yeah, but that's assuming that everyone understands what the morally right belief is. Mm -hmm. Like, like in the example, the idea is that the white academic is going to be like, oh no, I'm not being inclusive enough. Like, I need to now do something to be in line with that, but for all you know, like the way that they're being challenged is like, uh, I mean, the classic thing is kind of like, uh, like the Gen Xer or uh, the Boomer who thinks they're progressive, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you point out to them, actually, you're not as progressive as you think you are, like, like they kind of then like double down on being like oh my god this new generation blah 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 they don't know what i did for them and it's like it's like all right so you got with the times when they were good right like uh like uh like i'm re i'm listening to like a podcast dan Harmon's podcast uh I have, i've never listened to it so i'm listening to it from the beginning uh and like he definitely like he has this very kind of like, like general Xer opinion on like, like, you know, identity politics and being progressive. And like, you listen to it now in 2020, there are a lot of times where I'm like, oh, ooh, that's, that's not the right look guy. Like, you know, cause whether he's like, he's being like ironically racist or, um, or he's kind of doing like that, like, uh, oh, just be whoever you want to be. Who cares? Like, uh, you know, which, like, I also think is, like, the hallmark of the modern libertarian. It's just, like, ah, you don't need government to tell you, like, if you can marry or, you know, discrimination. And it's, like, no, oh, maybe, no, maybe we do need, like, protections, like, mm-hmm. because clearly, you know, pub- public opinion is at an all-time low for, uh, you know, progressive ideals, uh, even though there's, like... Uh, more and more, it seems like it's becoming more visible, but like that small minority that doesn't want it is becoming louder and louder. Um, And I think like, that is probably the biggest problem in white academia. Um, uh, I remember at my school, uh, a professor was called out uh, because in an LGBT issues course, uh, he brought in a panel of, uh, individuals whose partners left them because they, like, had their, uh, you know, like, uh, like, they came out or, like, kind of had that discovery of their sexual identity and left their current partner. Um, so a lot of them were, uh, heteronormative partners and, you know, being left, uh, You know, so women being left uh, because the individual, their partner realized that, you know, oh, I'm same gender loving and uh, I don't want to be a woman anymore or vice versa. And uh, I remember a lot of the students were like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Why are you doing this? Um, And his reasoning was like, he was like, this is a type of client you're going to, like, work with, maybe. Like, you're not always going to work with somebody that is like... uh, You know, like, you know, that they're not gonna walk in and be like, oh, progressive already. They're not gonna walk in and necessarily say the right things or know the like right stuff. He's like, you uh, wouldn't be seeing them otherwise, right? Um, And it was interesting because I saw it on both ends. I saw how he shut down and kind of locked in on the whole, like he's like, well, I'm an expert in this field. Um, He himself is not LGBT, right? But that is his research domain. That's all he's done for like 20 years, is research into that. And I saw the students locked down because they just, they were like denying his expertise because they're like, you're not a member of the group, so you're not an expert. And it's just, just, and I'm like, I'm like, it's possible that both of you guys are wrong. Like both sides are wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, as, but what's interesting is that as psychologists or a psychologist in training, like, I don't understand why, like, people don't understand, like, why don't you try to meet people where they're at in your everyday life? That's what we're trying to do with our clients. Like, we're, we're not always going to, like, you're going to, like, I know when I'm going to have a client who's going to be racist. I've had clients who are racist. I've had clients who are sexist. I've had clients who are homophobic. Um, and just like the way that Marissa was talking about, like, it doesn't do well for me. Like, in that first session, to sit down and be like, oh, so you're racist and homophobic. I can't work with you. Leave my office. Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't do anything, right? Like, uh, that's, you know, and, and like, we see that more and more on social media, right? Like, uh, uh, if you support this political stance or this political opponent, I excommunicate you from my life. I don't want mm-hmm. you here anymore. And, like, and so it just creates an echo chamber. And I think what's interesting is we can look at the echo chamber on the conservative side and be like, that's a problem. But obviously what uh, Marissa was talking about with the academic Twitter, like, there's an echo chamber there. And it's very white, Uh, you know, and uh, the people in power in academics are still largely white still largely male um they have the false sense of being progressive um because they went to a protest you know when they're 20 years old uh, now they're 60 and they're a multi-millionaire uh yeah and it's like uh it's really difficult because i think what's really funny is uh it always it always depends on the context. So I don't know about you, but like when I'm home, like I am I'm the Bernie Sanders of my family. I'm the most <laughs> radical leftist of all time. Um, when I'm in the context of my peers in my school, like I'm like this moderate. Like like I'm like I'm basically like in the middle. Like some people would probably even say I'm a fucking Republican, right? But then like when I'm talking with like my faculty right? It's like, it's like, uh, I'm, I, I am the absolute center pin of liberal and I'm talking to like this fake moderate, you know? Cause like, I don't, I, like, I don't believe moderates really exist anymore. I, like, especially like anyone who tells me they're libertarian, like libertarians. I'm like, all right, you're like an actual moderate, but you don't even think you're a moderate. <laughs> right. Because like, ah, oh, the whole thing. Uh, a little derailed, because I was trying to segue into Marissa's point about, uh, like, real conversations, because, you know, the idea was, like, we're having a real conversation about Marissa's thing, mm-hmm. and I'm talking about the psychological way that we're trained to have conversations with people, because, like, because if I do that on that first session, I'm not going to get anywhere with them. They're not going to return. I've done mm-hmm. nothing to help them, right? Mm-hmm. Like... I have to develop rapport with my client. I have to kind of like, you know, show them on their side. I have to show them I understand. And, and I'm not saying those in a fake way. I'm saying those in a genuine way. Like if I'm going to be a good therapist at all, anybody's going to be a good therapist. You have to come from authenticity. You have, to, you have to be genuine. You have to find something you like about that client. And that's not always easy. I can say this. I, I've worked with someone who was a murderer. He committed murder. I had to work with him, and I had to find, and I can tell you, he was like during my time with him, I I loved being able to see him every week. Uh, He he was one of my favorite people to see in a given week, Um, and like that takes it takes a lot of humility, it takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of understanding, and it just takes this idea that you know you have to be willing to accept that the core of a human being isn't nefarious, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think uh, that's what Marissa is going to talk more about in a very specific uh, way when she's talking about uh, institutional uh, allyship.
1: Yeah. Um, So I'll start off by talking about the... I guess my personal experiences, um, in teaching and some people that I've been influenced by and then the psychological research that supports that. And then a very specific psychological study that shows how this actually works. So the first part is, you know, um, I teach college and, um, Especially being in the Midwest, there's a lot of students who come from rural areas, especially now I teach in a very rural area. And so you have to we were talking about Bronfenbrenner's um, bioecological model in the last episode and how that influences people. So you have to really think about where people are coming from, what they've been exposed to and just having that understanding of what their life is like and knowing what they've had the opportunity to talk about what they haven't had the opportunity to talk about um and just knowing that we're not all coming from the same place is really important um and so there was also a research study um for one of my colleagues dissertations she was looking at um because our world has become extremely politicized um, it's funny when I met my husband, he said, he had said like, oh, I don't really care that much about politics, um, in 2015 and now like you can't not care about politics. It's not possible anymore. Um, so when you're going into, um, teaching people, um, oh, I was talking about this study where looking at, um, my colleague in her dissertation was looking at, um, people from, uh, conservative backgrounds and how they feel that they're able to be in the classroom. And, um, what she found was that, um, people who identify as more conservative will, actually have the experience where they don't feel like their opinion is going to be valued and so they don't say anything they just sit there and listen and maybe don't even take anything in so knowing the results of that dissertation going into my teaching um I think that helped me a lot because is it we You know, we don't want people to have racist opinions, but is silencing their opinions going to help them change their perspective um, and understand where we're coming from? And is it not also important to understand where they're coming from, what their line of thinking is? Um, Because like Brian was saying, you're going to have clients if you're a practicing clinical psychologist practicing counseling, psychologist, practicing social worker, you're going to have clients that you don't have similar opinions with. Um, Just like in my teaching, I'm going to have students who I don't agree with. But my role is not to push my opinions on my students. My role is to help them learn. Um, And to learn, you need to have meaningful conversations with people. Um, and classrooms, if the goal is learning, it needs to be a safe space where people can actually learn, think about the ideas they have that are perhaps incorrect. They have um, underlying assumptions that they haven't had the chance to prove to anybody um, or think about. And so in psychology, there's a lot of research about misconceptions and how to change somebody's misconceptions. Um, the way to definitely not do that is tell somebody that they are wrong and they, that their opinion is awful and they're a terrible person. So you need to make sure that you're separating, um, the person from their ideas. So in any good discussion guidelines for a class, you need to have that statement. Like, we are going to talk about issues. It's okay to have different opinions, but you talk about the issues. You do not attack people. Um, Because it's not about the person. It's about the ideas that they're sharing, that we're trying to learn from and debate. Um, And there is a, um, psychological phenomenon in psychology called belief perseverance, where if you have a belief that is really, really strong, um, like you're completely against abortion, um, you believe that gay rights are wrong and it goes against the Bible, um, when you have those kinds of beliefs and someone says you're wrong, that you can't even deal with that because your belief... Is just going to persevere through anything because especially if it's a really strong belief you're not going to easily change that so in order to deal with any misconceptions people have you have to talk logically um and so this comes down to the idea of framing so the way that you frame an issue that you're trying to talk about with somebody um is really important because if you say you're wrong, Um, you can't talk about this, there's no debating this issue, then as in my colleague's dissertation, they're gonna disengage and they're not gonna be a part of the conversation. And if we really want to make change, we have to actually encourage people to reconsider their opinion and also show that you're willing to reconsider your opinion as well um because otherwise you're just probably going to be seen as oh this person's just trying to change my opinion they're not going to consider my opinion at all so um certainly in any type of psychology um especially from the humanistic perspective Carl Rogers it's really important to listen not just Um, wait for your turn to talk. And so if people feel like they're being listened to, they're going to be more likely to say what they have to say. And then everyone is able to learn from that interaction. And even if you are maybe trying to change somebody's opinion, um, being open-minded and realizing that you can also learn where somebody's coming from with an opinion that you don't agree with. Um, because everyone has a reason in their head why they think something is rational. So even if you don't agree with somebody's opinion, understanding where they're coming from um, helps to further the conversation for everybody. Um, so I, as we were preparing for this episode on allyship, I found a very um, specific case about Um, not only changing somebody's opinion, but changing a stance of an entire institution. And so this was a research study um, published in 2016 by Russell and Bohan. Um, And they were talking about, they did um, a very in-depth ethnographic study of a church that had the position of a lot of churches that LGBT equality goes against the Bible. It's wrong. You can't be LGBT to the church changing their stance and becoming supportive of LGBT rights. And the way that they were able to do this was, um, it wasn't the case that all of the members of the church had the opinion that LGBT um, being LGBT was wrong. Um, but it eventually came to the situation where members of the church, their children came out as being LGBT and they, there were more people who started to understand the perspective that, you know, this is how people are. There's a lot of research on LGBT specifically, that people don't choose to be LGBT, that's how they are. Um, And so having more of that understanding helped the members of the church to recognize the importance of being inclusive of LGBT rights. And so they formed a committee and they started talking to other members of the church about why it's important to support LGBT rights and how it doesn't go against the Bible. Um, And so as they reached more and more members, helping them to understand the importance of LGBT rights, they eventually were able to um, change the overall position of the church by having this committee basically grow larger and larger. So seeing that example, knowing that it is possible to change the overall opinion of an institution by changing individual opinions first, um, I think is really powerful and important to think about how we can be allies for um, Black rights, for the rights of anybody who's marginalized, um, So even though we may not think that one conversation is powerful because there's so many people in the world, um, why would that one conversation have an impact, Um, seeing this very in-depth research study shows exactly how that can work. Um, So your one conversation with somebody that is meaningful can be very helpful whereas if you're trying to yell at president trump for being racist and a bigot and a jerk um you know that's not going to do anything because you're not having a conversation with him and there you know would he be open to a conversation is another issue but um if you talk to people who are open to having that conversation with you who maybe have a different perspective than you um that's going to be one of the most powerful things that you can do
0: so I I think uh, I think a big thing that our podcast hopefully can do uh or and I think is actively doing right is um because I think especially uh like when we're talking about these conversations and we're talking about how to do them right like uh you know the first level is like we got trained in how to have really difficult, uncomfortable conversations. Uh, you know, eventually, I'm gonna have to talk to a client about their penis. Probably, it's gonna happen, right? I'm gonna. I, I worked a lot with, uh, you know, uh, with black clients in Chicago. Most of the clients that I saw uh, were not white. So eventually, I have to talk about the fact that I'm like, hey, look, yeah, I noticed there's some differences between us my skin is this color, you know? And, you know, and trying to find ways that are authentic in, to do that. Uh, but we're also role modeling those behaviors. Um, you know, I think it's pretty clear that like, when I'm talking, Marissa is actively listening and vice versa, uh, and that the intention, right? And the goal is that, you know, you know, when you were looking at that case study, right? Like those conversations start But you also notice that they kept going up the chain, up the ladder, right? Like, and that's a really important part of being a white ally is that, you know, whether or not you think you are at the top of the ladder or at the bottom rung, your opinion matters. Like, having you being in a conversation matters, right? Because just like I opened up with about this idea that, like, is really hard for I really do think it's super hard for white people to understand the idea that, like, when you are being silent, you are being complicit. It's because your silence carries with it this, uh, you know, potential inference that, like, you're clearly on the side of the oppressor, you're clearly on the side of whatever is, like, you know, in power, right? Like, uh, you know, because, like, if you could actually have an open, honest conversation with, you know you know, the president of the country, like, though we we we're pretty much agreed that he wouldn't, like, he's not going to do that. He doesn't do that. But, like, that, like, if you were to have one, like, now you would actually be able to understand, like, where his position is. Mm -hmm. Right now, there is a ton of assumptions about it, but they're all negative. They're all bad, you know, and, like, he doesn't ever come out and, like, disprove that, right? But, like, but if you, as a white person, are being silent, like, that's like, they, they they look up the ladder, right? They look up the ladder of, all right, all right, well, who who's then the most vocal person with the most power, you know, that you're potentially then, you know, like, agreeing with? You know, uh, like, the metaphor of, like, you can't be a stationary person on a moving train. Like, it's not possible. Um. So with that said, like, uh, in the description or whatever we have a lot of different resources that we found, um, a lot of different articles about what it means to be a white ally, how to be a white ally. Uh, So I wanted to highlight a little bit about my experience because I went, I went to a school that was focused on social justice that was in their mission statement. It was a big thing. Um, We probably spent uh, maybe about a year and a half worth of like coursework and seminars learning about, uh, you know, the system of oppression within Chicago. Um, how uh, how how to use our power and privilege, especially as future clinicians, uh, to be advocates and such. Um, and some of the biggest things, like some of the toughest lessons I've had to learn, were like these. I like these ideas of humility. Uh, these ideas of like sitting in the fire. Um, that's what one professor put it. He said. Um, he said you're going to be in uncomfortable places. You're going to be in places and in conversations that are going to be super tough. You're not going to want to be there. And he's like, but that's why it's so important for you to learn how to sit in the fire now. Um, and like this fire, like is like, it doesn't hurt you. Right. Like, and like, so I, like for me, I always visualize the metaphor of like, just kind of sitting too close to a fire. Right. Like if you sit too close to a fire, it sucks. It's hot like you know it's uncomfortable but like you're not necessarily in danger you're not going to get burned you're not going to die but like no one wants to do that uh but especially someone with a lot of privilege like like you have to be able to sit in that you have to be able to sit in being not necessarily the focal point right you're not necessarily the focus of the conversation but like that fire that thing that makes you feel uncomfortable like that certainly is the focus for you but that's why you then have to learn the humility. You have to learn how to, like, set aside your ego, right? To be able to then be able to authentically, openly listen to people, right? Um, and so I wanted to highlight some of the uh, other, like, guidelines here that kind of go hand in hand. Like, if you're wondering, like, hmm, how can I be a better ally? Uh, I don't really understand what I should be doing, um and none of these things are even necessarily, like, actions. These are just kind of, like, ways to either kind of, like, start thinking about, uh, start talking about, right? Because the, the idea of direct action, direct action is you're going to a protest. You're donating money, right? Like, you know, like, that's obviously, like like, if you're already doing those types of things, like, you probably don't need, you're probably already doing these other things. But this is for the people who are, like, I'm already, I am I feel stuck and I don't really want to know what to do. Um, and these are guidelines um, adapted from uprooting racism, how white people uh, can work for social justice. Uh, again, like I'll put all the links in there. Um, one of the first things is like being able to accept or acknowledge that racism is ubiquitous, right? It's everywhere, it's prevalent. Because um, I, I know like you know, because we grew up in this largely white community, like, we were spoon-fed the, the story of how, like, racism ended because Martin Luther King marched one time and everyone said, oh, boy, howdy, he's right. Like, that's wrong, and now it's over. And it's like, F-, you know, like, there was so much unlearning, right? We Like, there was a lot of unlearning. I mean, I recently, like, this is, like, I thought, like, this was said. I recently learned that the only reason why the civil rights uh laws were passed but was because martin luther king was assassinated right uh assassinated by our own government right and then there was like seven days of rioting and then the government was like "Ooh, i guess we gotta pass civil rights like that's never been the story i've told were you told that story marissa no like no right no yeah, all the time, it was just Martin Luther King said he had a dream and he marched and then he died, you know, under mysterious circumstances, but the civil rights were passed and everyone was happy. And it's like, not the fucking case. Um, but this idea of like understanding that racism is ubiquitous, like, it, like there's a really simple logical argument to make here. A lot of the systems in place were created in line with racism, Right. Like, because like you could sit there right now and be like, racism's not a thing. Like slavery was so long ago, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Uh, so if you know that modern day policing comes from, uh, you know, slave capturers, you know, that's how modern policing was invented. It was a way to recapture slaves so like they didn't like get away. So if that's how your system started, like, and then you know it took a hundred years for like Black Americans to be considered equal. Like, I don't, I don't know if maybe if your system really evolved with the times. I don't really think it's the most progressive thing possible. At its heart, it's racist, right? And, and, uh, you can't divorce yourself from that. You can't get away from that unless you completely dissolve it and create a new structure, something new from the ground up. But also just the idea that like, just because you don't see something, that doesn't mean it's not there. Like... White privilege means that you have this veiled perspective of the world. Like, you don't see everything the same way anyone else does, irregardless of all your different identities, right? I don't see the world the same way Marissa does. And that's just because she's, like, a foot shorter than me, right? Like, fact. Like, that's just the first fact off the top of the, like, if me and her were standing on a rock, my horizon point is just further than hers because I'm a full foot taller right like we're not seeing the same world so then when you take into account that you know i'm a i'm male and she's female and then you take into account that like like i'm not any religion which you know is classic white guy bullshit for just being like i'm i passed for christian and no one bothers me about it so it's great you know like you know, Marissa, you know, as she mentioned in the first episode, like, you know, people tell her she doesn't look Jewish, right? But, like, she is Jewish, and, like, that carries with it a different perspective of the world. And, like, just because you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not there. And our perceptions are terrible. Our perceptions are shit. And anyone who tells you, like, and like, that's why I also can't stand uh, certain talking heads, you know, like Ben Shapiro, like, you know, like, oh, if I see it with my own eyes, and it's like, your, your perceptions are shit, though. They're crap. Like, everything I've learned about how the human body works from a psychological or biological point of view, it's amazing that we can walk and talk at the same time. Utterly astounding. The fact that there aren't car accidents every 20 seconds, also insane, right? So, like, you, like you just have to kind of, like, maybe give up a little bit of like this self-centered egotistical viewpoint that maybe you've been excluded from this perception because you've seen veiled racism all the time. You know, I know for me, like it took, uh, it took some jarring events for me to see the veiled racism in my family and my community. Um, right. And like, uh, and like, to just kind of like acknowledge that maybe you don't have a hundred percent of the story because you don't, your perceptions are not a hundred percent. Your experiences aren't a hundred percent. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Then the whole point about systems being old, I I, I wanted to mention, uh, uh, you know, like we talked about redlining. uh, We talked about Robert Moses um, and voter suppression, the way that voting laws work, you know, where like, uh, I'll put the link there too uh, the, it's a 2018 article that like talks about how these states uh, literally did research on like what kind of IDs people used and when people uh, would prefer to vote and literally made laws to target black Americans to make sure that the IDs that black Americans largely had were invalid and the days that like they could vote were not allowed uh, and some of them were struck down by you know circuit courts and uh, But obviously, they're they're always trying to push them out. Like, and it's just always so weird. Uh, Taking risks. Uh, If you're going to be a white ally, like, like, as we've been saying about this idea of, like, your privilege is that you're comfortable and that you can choose to elect to still be comfortable. Right? You don't have to risk your comfort. You can just, like, you don't even have to open your window if you hear... If you hear someone screaming, you you, can actually even get up and be like, ooh, let me make sure my window's locked just in case, and then I'm going to go back to my comfortable world. Like, but as we've talked about, like, this idea of comfort and this idea of cognitive dissonance, if you actually have something that you consider to be a true ethic, a true virtue, and you're unwilling to face consequences for that, like, you have to do some type of internal work. You have to do some type of reflection to wonder do you actually even care about that virtue, right? Like, especially, like, with, you know, the the counter arguments of all lives matter, right? Like, the, the, the most wonderful social uh, media rebuttals I've seen to that are when people do try to challenge them to be like, all right, so what do you do? Like, do you support refugees? Do you support... Uh, do you do you support people on death row like um are you like do you support adopting children like 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 where are you putting that effort in and those people often don't they don't Mm. do anything right because it's just a talking point it's a weak talking point but the converse of that if you're going to sit there and say black lives matter then you need to be willing to take a risk and one of the smallest ways you can take a risk is by you know having conversations with your family you know, talking to them about it, challenging your friends. Uh, It's more than just kind of putting a post up. You know, it's about willing to be uncomfortable because the idea is you have all these people who are, you know, they're not like, black Americans aren't uncomfortable right now. They're unsafe. Comfort and safety are often two things like in psychology that we talk about because they're conflated a lot of the times. There are a lot of times that people are like, I feel unsafe and often the challenge I would bring up is like, do you feel unsafe or do you just feel uncomfortable right now? Cause they're not the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Cause you can be utterly safe and it'd be the most uncomfortable thing in the world, right? Like, you know, I mean, like as we've probably all experienced at one time or another as we've been quarantined in your own home in your own place, right? Safe as could be right from the coronavirus but it's uncomfortable, it sucks, right? So like, uh, we, we have to learn that like a big aspect of our privilege is that we get to say, when we're uncomfortable, we feel unsafe. That's because being uncomfortable is so weird to us and we don't like it. Um, supporting uh, marginalized communities, but also at a local level, right? So like acting locally is acting globally. Like what can you do to be an actual positive member in your community? What places or things can you go to, right? And I'm not talking about protests. I'm talking about like, you know, you know, you know, black enterprise. I'm talking about, you know, what are you doing in your own church community to be inclusive? Like to to speak on the specific uh, case that Marissa was talking about, like, and what are you doing in your privileged spaces uh, to leverage Uh, like how are you leveraging your privileged space for a marginalized voice and how are you being inclusive within your community right uh you know because because especially like i mean because my frame of reference right now is largely chicago which is still so segregated in so many different ways right and it was like it was kind of like insane to think about like because you could turn a corner and you could go from like you know the classic safe neighborhood to unsafe, right? Which, you know, like we, you know, nice neighborhood or not nice neighborhood, uh, as as they say on Long Island, right? Which is, you know, you know, uh, white neighborhood, then "Mm, there are not white people here. Oh, you went from nice to not nice, right? Uh, Which, I mean, obviously we've already kind of acknowledged why that is the case with the redlining and everything. Uh, And the last thing is like being able to acknowledge that you have power, I think this is also something that's also really difficult, right? Because often there are the people who are like, well, I grew up poor or, you know, I grew up X or I had, I didn't have this. And it's like, all right, but like, you still have power, right? Like, you definitely do. Uh, like, my brother was just telling me about how a friend of his uh, has, is, in, is having some type of psychotic break. And uh, he's apparently living in the woods of Long Island right now. And uh, and his argument was kind of like, how does this person have privilege? How does like, he's like, do you really think he has white privilege? And I went, you just, I'm like, so you have a white friend who's living in the woods on Long Island in a largely white community. He's like, yeah. And I went, do, do you think a black man living in the woods wouldn't have already been arrested by now? And he's like, and like, and like he instantly was like, yeah. And I'm like, so that's the white privilege then, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's the fact that he's in those woods, and for the most part, everyone's just kind of like, ah, he's harmless, he just lives in the woods, you know? In reality, it's, oh no, he looks like me, so I don't really care. I, I'm not bothered by this, right? Like, it'll only become a problem if he starts trying to, like, largely engage the community, because we know that people with mental health issues, when they start, you know, you know, uh, interacting with too many people then then that's when white people are like whoa hold on no thank you you know then maybe we'll get the police involved uh and you know the second most uh targeted group for uh un, uh excessive force uh is individuals with mental health issues uh so that would be a great thing uh because So when I'm talking about this power, like uh, something I would do with my clients who have substance use issues is I would go out of my way to demonstrate how they don't have 100% control of their life. Uh, And what's interesting is like, depending on how you frame it, gets like two responses, right? Like when, so I would frame it and I would show like all the ways that systemic oppression and all the ways that like the systems in general uh, are, you know, blocking them from and I'm like and that makes it so you don't have 100% control and they'd be like yeah that's true and then if I like kind of flipped it to really say like yes yeah, so that means like you really there's not much you can do then right because those are big powerful things so you guys are kind of fucked and then that would erupt like oh fuck you that's bullshit like no no like no I can control my life and the whole point of that was to get them to realize you don't have 100% control but you don't have zero percent right It's somewhere between. It's 1 and 99. And that that, that applies to everybody. But my goal was, like, if life is a game of blackjack, I need you guys to start counting cards. I need you guys to come in as a team. I need you guys to try to game the system as much as you can, right? Like, because if all you have is a 1% edge, like, you need to be able to be aware of that. You have to identify it and then you have to leverage that. You have to be able to put 100% of your energy into that 1% edge that you have, you know? So even if the only thing you have going for you is the fact that, like, the color of your skin is white, right? Like, that's a lot more power than a lot of other people have, you know? Uh, In terms of being able to be, like, a force, like, as we're saying, like, our goal here is literally just to being having these real conversations, to being able to challenge and try to understand people. Because if you don't understand a point of view, like, you can't think critically about it, right? Like, you're never gonna, like, you're never gonna get past the point. Um, And to kind of illustrate that, like, uh, for me, I read this quote, uh, and I would love to hear some of your thoughts about it too, Marissa, uh, because, like, I had, I had, a pretty strong reaction to this quote, and I kind of like did some like stream of conscious writing after it because I was like, oh fuck, what am I reacting to? Um, so it's from uh, Lillian uh, Robel Rose, and she said, because she does like, I guess, like these talks with, uh, you know, diversity talks or leadership talks about, uh, you know, marginalized people, and she said, I tell white people in my workshops that I expect them as allies with power in the oppression of racism, to act justly and not dominate, regardless of the fact that we may never love them.
1: Yeah. So I think that kind of goes along with maybe the idea of performative allyship, like we're not going to cheer for you for doing the right thing Mm -hmm. Um, so if people are going into space for attention like look at how great I'm doing and supporting your community no one's going to actually do anything because I mean you're just doing the right thing like Mm -hmm. that's expected of you Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that's definitely important to consider
0: like, and like uh for me like like uh i i subscribe to uh a school of psychology called adlerian psychology or individual psychology and a big part of it uh, always focuses on community and social engagement um and like so like for me like my i definitely have this first reaction of like oh this kind of like shuts down like, an authentic engagement, or locks, like, is like, a locking out of a larger community, and, I, like, and that, that was something, I, like, I definitely had to, like, reflect on more to, like, really think about, like, why am I feeling that way? Like, to, like, really find, like, that piece of me that, like, like, I, like, found that piece of me, I identified that piece of me that was, like, that had that, like, that white savior expectation, that, like, if I do these things, and I do them well, like, you know, that, like, I would get some type of recognition for it, right? Where Whatever that recognition would look like. And having to then kind of realize, like, you know, do you deserve love or accolades, like you said, for basic human decency? Like, you don't, you wouldn't, uh, you don't profess your love to somebody uh, because, like, they held a door open for you, right? Like, you don't, uh, you know, you don't uh, stop, your fucking life because someone said god bless you like you know these things that are quote unquote expected in polite society um but you know but then at the same time like you know being anti-racist like you know some part of me was like oh but like shouldn't i like and like having to realize that and having to be like oh fuck like well that part of me like i need to like, I don't necessarily need to squash it. I don't need to destroy it. I don't need to eliminate it. But, like, I have to be aware of it, right? Because, like, that is, uh, That's something I, like, I shouldn't be bringing in. I shouldn't, like, allow that to ever try to dictate what I'm going to do. Um, especially, like, as we're talking about this right now, um... I know, uh, like, Robert Fuller, Malcolm Harsh, uh... Aluatoian Salou, like, were three, uh leaders in Black Lives Matter uh Robert and Malcolm were lynched like and police are like ah no foul play because you know classic you know black men just hanging themselves from trees as they do uh and Toyin uh uh was uh raped and murdered uh after having come out and spoken about sexual assault uh at, and she was 19. Uh, and so, like, in my reflection, like, when I was thinking about those things and, like, you know, I was just kind of like, yeah, that is such a selfish, like, self-indignant reaction to have about the idea that, like, oh, we may never love you. But meanwhile, like, there, because there, I think there's been a couple of more incidences of you know, black men mysteriously hanging themselves and police still just being like, oh, we have no idea. Like, and... like, Because like, this shit should make you scare and crawl. It should make your stomach lurch. And, like... And, like, that... That has to still always be the focus. Um, because, again, it's... We're talking about discomfort versus actual safety. Like... We're talking about the fact that, like, our privilege means that we're costing ourselves emotional labor, and we're costing ourselves the comfort. Um, but for these people, they are literally fighting for their lives, you know, just to get basic decency. And because uh, there was a, there was an interesting, uh, like, I don't save things like Merce does, so that that that's that's my problem. I saw a Twitter thread where this person was explaining like the idea of emotional labor and why it's and why it's like on like an undue burden on people of color um and why you know people of color tend to be more tired and like and they were coming from it from a psychological point of view like they were saying like this anecdotally and then providing data and this person and then like and why they wanted white people to take up uh part of the cause and this person was like oh so you just like so like what would that do like would that actually help uh Black people be, you know, less this. And she was like, probably not. Probably just mean like, we all be fucking tired. But, you know, that's supposed to be life. That's supposed to be hard work. Like, like I don't think we're ever going to get to a place where we're not. Like, we're suddenly all going to be, like, refreshed and racism's defeated. She's like, but it would at least let us know better who is working against us. because Because if we have enough of us working against the system... Then like we'll be tired because this is some bullshit that we're still dealing with hundreds of years later. But then we're gonna make them real fucking tired too. Because they're gonna be they're gonna start losing numbers and they're not gonna be able to do this shit as much. Um like and I think that really does kind of like succinctly bring us to like why we want what we hope to get from this episode is trying to get more people to take up the cause to do more of the emotional labor, uh, to do more of the difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that brings us, uh, that brings us to our focus of our own community, our own, uh, psych education. Yeah.
1: hmm Yeah. And, uh, what Brian was just talking about with emotional labor definitely connects to the psychological concept of cognitive load. And in our next episode, good segue, we will end up talking about um, the graduation divide and how there are differences depending on your race, whether you're going to graduate from high school, from college, from graduate school, And part of that is this emotional labor or cognitive load. So you can only hold so many things in your mind at once. And if part of what you're worrying about is, am I safe in this space right now? Is it okay for me to share my experiences or do certain things without being actually physically harmed? Um, That takes up your cognitive load. And if Um, the spaces that you're in are not being supportive of who you are, um, then that takes up part of your cognitive load and you don't have the privilege of focusing on learning the content in your course or being successful in your work environment if part of your mind is focused on, am I safe in this place? Do I belong here? So... We will talk about that more in our next episode. Any Mm -hmm. uh, final thoughts from you, Brian? Uh, I
0: think... I think... I think, like, the point uh, that we hope that we made to, like, reiterate, maybe for, like, the fourth, fifth, sixth, I don't know, seventh time, uh, is that this can help to... Facilitate conversations. Generate new ones. um, But also, like, illustrate the fact that, like... I mean, in all the research I did for being a white ally, do you know what I never saw anywhere in there? The expectation for perfection. Right? Like... And it's so interesting because it's literally the thing... Like, that... They're offering imperfection to us as white people and that's definitely not being offered back to them. You know what I mean? Like on a large scale, like, and that would be like the last thing I would say that like a white ally needs to bring, because if you want to be able to be imperfect, like even in this moment, like me and Marissa Bolt shared parts of ourselves that were imperfect, right? Parts of ourselves that are like, you know, not necessarily antithesis to the movement or to, you know, Black Lives Matter But like things that were like, well, this was a struggle for me, or this made me uncomfortable, and I didn't know what to do with it, right? But like, you need to be able to go into these spaces, and you need to be able to allow for humanity to exist. And humanity is flawed, right? And you have to allow for uh, these other people that you are alleging that you want to help to be imperfect as well. Because their expectation isn't going to be that you're gonna be perfect. In fact, their expectation is you're gonna probably be shit, right? Like, you know, white allies, um, you know, are often not, uh, you know, the first called upon when it comes to action, you know, like direct action. Like, I think the problem is that, you know, the expectation is everything's gonna be perfect, everything's gonna run smooth, or like there are going to be no whatever. and, like, you shouldn't have that expectation because it doesn't exist anywhere. Perfection's fucking made up. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's usually why, like, white allies are called to do, like, the less indirect action because it's like, all right, well, if you're going to do something, then here you go. Do the simple task, but stay the fuck out of our way. You know, so if you really want to be a better white ally, like, you have to be willing to uh, accept that there are going to be flaws and that's okay because you're flawed in that moment in the things that you're doing. Uh, and that allyship is a process. It's, uh, it's never-ending, like, just like learning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, uh, I, I wish we had talked a little bit about like what learning actually is. Maybe we can do that for next episode because I think so many times people don't know what learning means because uh, like, I think like, uh, mm-hmm. people are like, learning means I remembered something. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's remembering. That's why we have a different word for it, mm-hmm. right? It's like learning something uh, is much more complex than that.
1: Yes. Uh, And you need to be uncomfortable when you're learning as well. Learning is not easy. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so many people think that learning should be easy. But if you're actually learning, it's going to be uncomfortable. And Piaget talks about that you have to actually change the way you are organizing information in your brain in order to learn something. And that's not Mm -hmm. easy.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah and and since the brain doesn't the brain doesn't have uh sensory perception right like that's why like you know you know uh like if your brain is damaged you don't know if you have a tumor you don't know until it starts hurting like it starts touching something else so mm-hmm. it's like uh i I, w- I wonder if that's if that's the reason why you have so much discomfort is because your brain is finally actually screaming out, being like, ah, I don't want to learn things. Because your mm-hmm. brain is... The brain is the smartest dumb thing on the planet. It wants shortcuts for everything.
1: And mm-hmm. the day that
0: you try to make it long, do something long form, long form it's like, no, f- that. I don't want to do it that way. What's the easy shortcut so I don't have to learn? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think that's... Uh, that's really the crux of it is that you're going to be uncomfortable and you're probably going to to be uncomfortable for ever (laughs) because allyship is a lifelong process. If you're willing to commit to it that you should probably commit to because, uh, I mean, most of the things that they're asking for are just, you know, basic human decency. They're not asking for anything above and beyond. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, So like Marissa said, in our next episode, we're going to talk about the graduation divide, which is, you know, Marissa's, I think that was your biggest thing that you wanted to talk about when we started this, so.
1: Yeah, definitely, Uh, um, you know, my dissertation focused on retention, mm -hmm. and uh, so that's what I care about, and certainly there are huge differences in the retention and graduation of Black and also Hispanic students compared to Asian and white students. I'm sure lots of you have many ideas as to why that might be, but I'll talk more about the research for college. Brian will talk more about the research for grad school. Maybe we'll talk about K-12 if we have time, or that'll be another episode.
0: So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 I'm hoping to touch a little bit about uh, the school-to-prison pipeline. But it's going to be a heavily Marissa-carried episode, because that is clearly her expert tease right there. <laughs> All right, thank you guys so much for listening to the Just Psych podcast. Uh, it's on the internet somewhere, eventually. <laughs> uh, and, and, and a special, uh, special shout-out to uh, Marissa's brother, Bobby. will be uh taking care of all the what's this word uh actual work of podcasting (laughs) (laughs) yes yes
1: he is a audio professional music professional and so he is going to do a great job with all of the editing for us so and eventually you will also hear original music from him so we're looking forward to that
0: Absolutely and then uh, and then uh oh my friend Kim uh, sent me a uh, prototype uh, logo design, uh, so my friend Kim Valdez uh, is gonna make art for us so that there's art so you could look at a piece of art as you listen to us. So I'm excited about that. I, I like the original prototype, but she she's very uh, nitpicky. As she said herself. (laughs) So. Yeah. So I can't wait to show you those things. I can't wait to record more episodes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. See you next time.
0: See you next time.